there's plenty of physics that you can do in the world, as far as I understand it, that doesn't involve having access to a, uh, a super collider or, or things like that. And similarly, I believe that there are and will continue to be a lot of machine learning that doesn't rely on having access to collider scale resources for machine learning. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. I was recently introduced to D. Scully as the new CEO of Kaggle, which is obviously an amazing site that we all love. But I later learned that he was the author of Machine Learning, the High Interest Credit Card of Technical Debt, which is a paper that inspired so many people, including myself, to go out and start machine learning tools companies. So could not be more excited to talk to him today. A note to our listeners, this conversation took place in August 2022. Since then, Kaggle has only continued to grow. All right, well, it's it's great to, to talk to you. And I think the impetus for talking was you taking over Kaggle, which is a really you know important website in the machine learning community and important to a lot of our uh, listeners and, and users at Weights and Biases. But I realized in, in researching you, which I should have realized that you are the author of the um, machine learning high interest technical debt paper, which I think um, inspired a lot of people um, and you know really resonated when it came out um, with me. And so I thought maybe um, you could start for people who haven't read this paper by kind of summarizing it. Um, and I'm also curious if anything has changed since that paper was written. I'm trying to remember now, this must be like 2016 or 2017 that I think it, it was came 2015, out. yeah. Oh, 2015. Uh, <laughs> I, if I remember right, yeah, it right, feels like yeah. a million years ago. To be honest. Um, but yeah, maybe before we get into it, for, for I think a lot of people will have read the paper, but for those who haven't, if you could kind of summarize the, the paper, that would be a great place to start. Yeah, sure. So, um, first of all, hi, thanks for, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. Um, yeah, so, you know, my, my journey in machine learning, you know, it's, it's, it's been, uh, you know, a couple decades at this point. Um, I spent a long time at Google working in production systems. So some of Google's most production critical ML systems uh, uh, for for many years uh, led uh, some of Google's ad click through uh, PCTR systems for a while. Um, and during that time, I gained a really clear appreciation for the importance of uh, you know machine learning uh, as a critical part of larger important systems and uh, got to experience firsthand all the different ways that things can go in unexpected directions. Um, yeah. And you know, these were systems that obviously had been around for, for a long time. You know, at, at the time that we're talking about, I guess 2015 or so, the, the systems had already been, you know, in use in, uh, in production one form or fashion for, uh, for more than a decade. Uh, and so at that time, um, I feel like, you know, my team and I had some insights into how things work in machine learning systems over the long term that not too many other people were in a position to, to be able to reflect on just, just because it was a relatively new field at that point. Um, so I thought it was useful to sort of write some of the things down that we were seeing. And... Um, Using the the metaphor of technical debt, I think was a was a useful way to to frame some of those things because, you know, when we think about technical debt from a software engineering perspective, um, you know, we think about the kinds of costs that you incur when you're moving fast, uh, and you know, you probably know something about moving fast in startup land, and uh, you know, uh, maybe having to make some some tough calls between. Uh, you know, getting something out the door now uh, versus you know adding in another you know six layers of integration testing or, or whatever the the trade off might be. Um, so there there are really good reasons to move fast. Um, it's uh, uh, sometimes unavoidable, but in doing so, we create some costs for ourselves over time that need to be paid down. And it's not that we can never take those costs on, but we better be honest with ourselves about what those costs are. And at the time. Um, I think it was underappreciated uh, how much technical debt can be incurred uh, through the use of machine learning, and so uh, you know it's kind of obvious to to sort of see that a machine learning stack is built on code, uh, and so you know it has all of the technical debt opportunities that normal code has, but then it also has these uh, system level behaviors that emerge over time uh, that have 
you know, nothing to do with sort of code level checks, but do in fact um, uh, create cost uh, that, that needs to pay down. So, you know, even the simplest things you can think of, like when you're first building a model, you know, oftentimes if you're in a hurry, you you rush and you put a whole bunch of features in the model. Everything you can think of, you put it in there, you know, uh, uh, accuracy is 0.9. You're like, okay, that's pretty good, but I can think of another 20 features and you put all those, you know, 20 new features in and now it's 0.92 and then you're like, well, it's pretty good, but but if I put another 20 features in, uh, then I get 0.93. And so we're sort of in this, you know, uh, regime of diminishing returns to some degree. Um, it's not necessarily clear when we're throwing all these features into a model um, uh, what the value of each one is. And it's possible that we're putting um, a lot of features into a model that aren't particularly informative or where the information is being usefully conveyed already by some other feature or things like that. It's sort of like a bundled approach. Um, it's typical of sort of early development in a machine learning pipeline. Uh, so, you know, we made accuracy go up. What, what could what could be the problem, right? Uh, so, you know, as I'm sure you've seen, every time you you add a feature into a model, you create a dependency. You know, you, you now have a dependency on some behavior observation in the outside world. And this means that you have a vulnerability uh, if that behavior in the outside world changes. And it could change because, you know, people in the outside world change. It could change because the upstream producer of that signal changes. Maybe they create an upgrade, uh, which sounds to them like a really great thing, but your model has learned not on the upgrade signal, it's learned all the weird errors and it's learned around them. So you could get some some weird uh, uh, behaviors at, at upgrade time. Maybe they get sick of creating your nice feature and, and turn it off. Uh, that's not going to be a good day in, in, in the production system. Uh, and so it's really important that when we're thinking about model development, that we're thinking about the long-term costs of adding system complexity and model complexity and data complexity um, at the same time as we're thinking about improving accuracy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you've really experienced this um, firsthand. Are there is there any like specific things that happened where you you really thought like oof like that that drives this point home? Well, um, so I'm not going to tell any tales out of school, of course, um, but I will use the phrase "you can imagine" a lot. Uh, and uh, you can imagine why. But um, you can imagine that if you had a model that um, uh, was using, uh, let's say, a topic model from some upstream producer, uh, maybe that topic model that takes text and returns a sort of low-dimensional representation of sort of the topicality of that given piece of text, uh, maybe in the early days of development of that topic model, it might, might not have had great coverage of um, non-English languages. Uh, and so, um, if a if you're training um, a model to take that topic model as an input feature, uh, that it might learn that the topics reported for certain uh, low coverage languages aren't particularly reliable um, uh, for for whatever reason. Maybe it assigns them a a slight negative weight or something like that. Um, and then. Um, and it's not too important because they just don't fire very often. So it doesn't show up in sort of aggregate metrics. Uh, and then you can imagine if you were a nascent uh, machine learning engineer and didn't know any better, uh, you learned that there was an upgraded version of this model uh, that uh, dramatically increased coverage in some of those low resource languages, uh, that now those topics might fire with much greater frequency. And so what uh, uh, if you don't retrain your model, uh, you can imagine that now those uh, topic level features inside your model are firing much, much more often and maybe sending um, a lot of content uh, um, to lower scores than you might have expected. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's the sort of thing that can happen. You can imagine things like uh, an upstream producer of a given signal suddenly going offline uh, without warning. And, um, Data is transitive, so you know it might be that um, the upstream producer of a signal that you're consuming also has an upstream pr- um, producer of a signal it's consuming, and that 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 chain might hop several several links. Um, and so it could be that um, your system is being impacted by some other upstream signal, uh, you know, several hops up in the fold. And if you're not really careful about making sure that uh, alerting and um, uh, things like that are also uh, being propagated transitively. You're not going to know until it's um, 
until it's hitting your production data. And so, you know, th these sorts of things can happen. Um, and you, you want to be, you know, defensive as possible, right? So uh, working on your er early warning alertings and all these things to make sure that if, if something is coming down the pike, you, you get notified in advance. Um, you also want to think about, you know, we talk about coding defensively and, and regular engineering. Um, uh, you know, coding defensively on data often looks like monitoring of your input data distributions. Um, checking for things like sudden changes in input data um, uh, SKUs or streams. Uh, one thing you could imagine is, uh, let's say you have a model that is consuming data globally, but for whatever reason, a, um, a data center in a given part of the world goes down that day, like it can happen. Um, suddenly, your input data is likely to be highly skewed from what it normally looks like because you're missing a giant chunk of data especially if there are, say, you know, large time of day, local time of day effects, um, you could have very uh, different behavior for a given day or a period of days uh, through an upstream outage that you know, if you don't have the proper uh, input stream alerting about, you, you might not know what to think about. Do you feel like these problems are getting better or are getting worse? And how do you feel like the the change to kind of more complicated, bigger more black box models um, affects this calculus. In 2015, when we first wrote these papers, uh, we got basically two reactions. Uh, one was the sort of, you know, uh, very nice affirming reaction of, oh my gosh, this stuff is so important. Thanks for writing this down. We wouldn't have thought of any of these things. Or more often, yeah, we've, we've encountered some of these things, but we didn't know that other people did too. You know, uh, th those, those kinds of reactions. Um, the second major reaction that we got was uh, from large parts of the animal research community that was basically like, what are you people talking about? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, like that, that first NURBS paper uh, got, uh, you know, a, uh, a full, you know, poker hand straight of review scores, you know, uh, <laughs> all the way from the highest possible, lowest possible, a couple in the middle, like just no, and no, no idea really what to do with it. And, uh, you know, eventually they, they let us in, um, uh, mostly on the like, well, you seem to be passionate about what you're talking about. You know, uh, people disagree with you, maybe. So why don't you come and, and hash it out? Which very reasonable statement. We we were happy to do it. Um, but um, I think you know the world here in 2022 understands that these these issues are real. That they're real work. They um, aren't just an accident or you know what happens if you hire the wrong ML engineer or something like that. They're they're systemic. And so we need to approach them systemically. So now there's this whole field of ML ops. And when you say, you know, ML ops, people nod sagely and say, yes, yes, we need to invest in ML ops. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's a totally different world from that perspective in that you don't have to convince people um, that these problems are problems. Um, uh, that, that message, I think, has gotten through, and, and I'm happy about that. Um, in terms of... You know, when you have much larger models, do these problems get worse? Um, they certainly get more acute. And, um, you know, I'm not going to say that we're in a worse spot because I think that having, you know, a whole field of really smart people working on these problems and creating, you know, infrastructure that can help address them and things like that is is a better spot to be in than having people think about these problems for the first time or rolling their own. But from a, a reliability standpoint, um, as our models get larger and larger, uh, you know, why are we making models larger and larger? We're making them larger and larger because uh, we want to learn usefully from more and more data. Why are we throwing more and more data at a problem? Um, you know, it's if you were thinking of you know the problem, say estimating the probability that a coin is coming up heads. You know, you don't necessarily need to go from a billion to ten billion examples, right? Like basic statistics tell you that yeah, after a couple hundred flips, you're going to get a pretty good estimate. You can stop, right? But we don't do that with machine learning. We keep going. Because um, we need our models to exhibit ever more fine-grained behaviors and um, to respond usefully to a wider variety of input environments and scenarios. Uh, and so we, we have larger and larger uh, data sets because we need to have uh, more and more and more uh, behaviors that our models can adapt to um, and can exhibit. Uh, now, if you were to tell a typical software engineer, hey, the system that we're building um, used to need to have um, a thousand behaviors and now it's got a million, uh, that person would probably say, well, our 
testing is probably also going to be a priority here. And, you know, we used to have, you know, maybe 2000 unit tests, you know, two, two for each of these behaviors. Now you're telling me we've got a million, like, ah, we're going to have to hire a couple more test engineers. Right. Um, and maybe, maybe many more, um, when our models are being relied on to produce many, many more behaviors in a useful way, uh, I think that this really ups the stakes on our overall processes of uh, vetting and quality assurance uh, and uh, sanity checking uh, and validation of our models. Uh, you know, the 20 years ago view of machine learning was basically like, look, you've got your test set and your training set, and so long as they're from the same distribution, um, we're just going to assume that your your uh, test data has all the behaviors that you're going to need to worry about. So no problem. Just make sure you've got good accuracy on your held out um, uh, test set. And that's not a silly place to start, but it's probably not a great place to end. Um, you know, why do we use IID data sets from the same distribution for te for test and training? Um, you know, everybody knows that this is what you quote unquote should do. But let's let's remember why we're doing this. We're doing this because um, uh, there are clever statisticians who, for many decades, uh, have um, uh, said important things like correlation is not causation, right? Uh, and the machine learning people are like, well, we're going to just learn from correlations, right? We're learning from observational data. We've got giant amounts of observational data. So we're just going to learn from that. And the statisticians are like, well, what are you going to do about the whole like correlation is not causation thing? And the, the machine learning people's response is, well, if we guarantee that the um, test data is from the same distribution, then in terms of outcomes, we can ignore this inconvenient fact that correlation is not causation. Um, and the statistician people are like, well, that's not awesome, but I guess you're right. And so long as you promise that your test data will always be from the uh, same distribution, we, we can't really argue that. Obviously, it's a caricature, and uh, I hope not to offend any statisticians or machine learning people in this. But, um, but so we do this IID um, test train split, not because we think this is how the world works, but because if we don't do that, then we expose ourselves to a whole set of, of um, much more difficult problems in terms of the learning settings that we're in. And, and you know, to some degree, you know, all of the theoretical guarantees of supervised machine learning rely on this, this assumption that we're going to be um, staying in this IID test train split world. Uh, and so this is all fine, but the one you know small problem that the world actually almost never works this way. You know, we we can um, you know offline do our little research idea of like saying, okay, well I've got my um, data set, I'm going to split it carefully, and so these are are therefore from the same distribution. But when we go and and deploy a model in the real world, it's pretty unlikely that the data that that model encounters is going to be from exactly the same distribution that happened to be in our limited historical snapshot of data that we we collected you know, uh, previously. Um, just the world tends not to be that kind to us. And so our models are going to um, encounter data from different distributions. Uh, they're going to encounter worlds in which correlations that existed uh, spuriously in our training data do not hold or maybe are explicitly broken in uh, our production environment. And so this means that we have to really up our game on uh, evaluation. It means that we can't just rely on test set accuracy or things like that as our final validation. We need to, you know, be much more rigorous about, um, you know, cataloging for ourselves and you know talking to our uh, clever domain experts and things like this to to tell us, okay, what are the places where our correlations are going to break down? Where might our blind spots be? Uh, and how can we create um, specific stress tests to uh, um, to analyze our performance in these areas? Well, it's funny, you know, because I remember when um, in the very early days of of deploying machine learning that um, having it held out a test set that was randomly sampled was actually kind of an improvement over the people's kind of first intuition, which is to just kind of try a bunch of different things and, and be like, I, I really want everything to improve. And I mean, I think one thing that can come up when you have lots of different evaluation sets and different constituents is, you know, some number is going to go down. If you have sufficient evaluation sets on any new model, um, you release it. It's hard to have kind of like a principled process for, um, you know, getting a new model into 
into production. I'm curious how you um, think about that or kind of combat that because I, I'm sure you're you're many more steps ahead along that journey and, and the work that you do. Yeah. So you know what happens when you have uh, have a model that is better in many areas but worse in some others, and how do you make the call and who chooses? Uh, these are really important problems. Um, you know you. Uh, there are people who know um, a lot more about the world of ML fairness than I do, but um, uh, I think it's easy to see that many of those kinds of fairness issues and uh, you know human bias issues can can creep in when folks are making decisions about you know version A versus version B, and you know where are the improvements and where are the detriments to for a given model of uh, improvement or update. Um, so some of these are going to be judgment calls. Uh, uh, I. I think that to do this well, um, it's it's really helpful to have some standardized practices. Uh, so one standardized practice that I think is underutilized in the field is to have really detailed write-ups um, on every single model change you know uh, that is being proposed for a new production launch. Uh, you know, almost like a, a paper, a mini paper, just about that one change, analyzing it in depth, um, so that yeah, we can have. Uh, some usefully distilled knowledge about what that change is. Um, uh, I think that you know, machine learning people often play a little bit fast and loose with their experimentation. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, the fact that um, it's useful to have infrastructure to support a notebook of experiments, and like this is an improvement. Like it's it's a really great thing to have, but it also says something, you know, to some degree about the uh, the state of the world where where something like this is is seen as a uh, a, a really useful innovation, which of course it is. Um, but, um, you know, so number one, making sure that every single change, no matter how small is, is carefully, um, uh, analyzed and written down. I, I really do feel that writing things down is important. You know, as much as I love having an automated system that that collects all of your past experiments and, and sort of gives you the numbers. I, I think that that human step of reading through the numbers and, you know, um, drawing a conclusion and, and writing that conclusion down in human language so that it can be uh, discussed and poked about is, is a really important step. I, you know, to first approximation, I think it's science is what happens when you write things down, and it's it's important for us to be scientists. Um, so then, you know, what's what's standard practice? Uh, everybody brings their write-ups um, into a, a, a meeting, and um, people will talk about them. And there has to be you know a couple of people who make the call in the end. But uh, but these things should be discussed. They should be debated. They should be um, you know uh, looked at from every lens and uh, with you know really carefully with as much um, data and insight as we can bring to these problems. And then and then you know useful informed folks are going to have to make a call. But uh, but they we should be giving those decision makers as much uh, context and insight as they possibly can. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I guess another change, big change that's happened since 2015 is. Many, many of the new applications and models operate on unstructured data. And I think there's sort of an implicit assumption even in talking about features that were operating on tabular data, which I think was the vast majority of use cases in, in 2015. Do, do you think there's anything that kind of changes about what you're talking about when um, the inputs are you know, images or movies or, or audio files where you probably can't worry about the distribution of like the third you know, pixel in every image? Like it's hard to yeah. say what that means even. No, so it's, it's a great point. Um, I think that the basic ideas still hold, and I'm enough of a dinosaur that I, I say features, um, uh, you know, sort of as, as my go-to. But I think that the same ideas hold directly, even in unstructured data, like images, like video, like audio, like, you know, relatively unstructured text. Um, yeah, I, I think the uh, uh, the first line paper had this really nice example of huskies on snow backgrounds versus non-snow backgrounds. Um, and I don't think that we have to have extracted a feature, you know, is snowy background um, to, to see the point here, right? Um, the questions are, you know, what are the qualities of the data? What's the information that's being contained in the data? We can often talk about that using the language of features, um, but it's... It, I think it, it holds generally for any sort of correlation um, that's going to exist in our input data. And so, you know, that could be more equivalent of snowy backgrounds or, uh, uh, you know, backgrounds in an image or facial characteristics uh, in certain populations or uh, any number of, of uh, characteristics that can come through in video uh, or image. 
you know, uh, there's there's some pretty interesting um, uh, stories of um, you know cancer detection uh, on images that might have had uh, sharpie circles written around uh, some of the images when they were annotated by the original doctors or things like that. You know, like do those correspond to literal literal features? No, but they're but they're certainly um, qualities of the data that we need to be aware of. In the same way that uh, for audio input data, um, you know, speaker characteristics uh, and being you know inclusive of a wide range of speaker categories is, is really really important. So I guess I, I do want to talk something some about Kaggle because that's that's your new job. I'm I'm curious how it's going, but I'm also um, curious to know what got you excited about about joining Kaggle in the first place. Like it's kind of an interesting choice because. You know, so many. I mean, I love Kaggle. I think it's it's played a bigger role in the ML field than than people even maybe realize. Like, it was the first place I think a lot of people saw um, deep learning and it really working. For example, um, but the the criticism Kaggle, and I think there's some truth to it, has always been that you know, kind of making a high performing model on a specific data set is sort of the least of the problems of getting you know machine learning to to work in the real world. And I feel like you're like this real expert on getting, you know, machine learning models to work in the real world. Um, so how does that connect with you um, joining Kaggle? Yeah. So um, great set of questions. So first of all, I am really excited about being part of Kaggle. I um, uh, have had touch points with Kaggle at a couple of different points. Um, I, I ran, uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, early competitions and then we, we ran another uh, competition called Inclusive Images uh, a couple of years ago as well. So I, I've known the team for a long time and I've been a, a big fan of the platform. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the papers that I've written around, uh, you know, the sort of state of the machine learning field in general, but I I feel that we are at a bit of a tricky spot in um, the life cycle of the field of machine learning research. Uh, we're at a place where there are incredibly strong incentives for people to be publishing papers. Um, and I don't think I need to oversell that now, but it, it's it's true that that you know publishing papers is a big deal. Um, you know when you add it all up, there's something like ten thousand papers a year, you know, give or take um, published at top conferences each year. Um, but there's this sort of interesting thing. Uh, each of those papers is claiming a you know point five percent or one percent improvement on some important problem. But have we really improved the field by five thousand or ten thousand percent per year? Like I don't think so. Uh, so something interesting is happening there. If you've been involved with um, conferences either as a submitter or a reviewer or an area chair, um, you'll notice that uh, our reviewer pools are getting crazy tapped out, and they have been for some time. You know, in today's conference reviewing world, it is often the case that uh, uh, reviewers may be first-year graduate students, um, which is, you know, like obviously wonderful that they're performing the service, but it's quite a different thing to be getting um, a, you know, high-stakes review um, on the quality of a piece of, of you know, uh, research uh, from someone just entering the field versus someone who's been in the field for many years. And, and this is just a function of the growth of the field. The growth of the field has been uh, you know, pretty astronomical. You know, uh, the number of papers, uh, you know, sort of appearing per year, I believe, is growing exponentially. It certainly was the last time I checked. Um, and the number of qualified reviewers is not growing exponentially. So this is interesting. Um, as a field, it's easy to see that we're sort of fragmenting um, drastically across, you know, many, many benchmarks. As a field, we're um, really pushing this idea of novelty. It's it's quite difficult to get a paper published without a a novel algorithm. Um, and you know, in terms of science, uh, I think that this is leading to a world where we don't necessarily have the best understanding of um, the algorithms that we think are the are the best or the go to because we're so busy inventing new ones. Um, and and just as a comparison point, I, I, I'm. I, no one would confuse me with a physician, uh, but my understanding is that in the medical world, um, doctors uh, often publish papers that are, you know, case studies about, um, uh, you know, diseases or treatments or stuff like this. Uh, 
I would certainly hope that there is not a strong impetus that every single paper that is published in the medical field has a new treatment. <laughs> you know, like if novelty is like the number one thing and every single, you know, uh, medical thing has to be testing something new, I'd be worried as someone who likes to go to the doctor to get healthy. You know, in the medical field, we often see meta-analyses. We often see replication results. We often see case studies, the sort of, you know, saying, reporting the experience of a, uh, a given trial um, or a given treatment or things like this. And those kinds of papers are largely missing from the field of machine learning research right now. Uh, and I think it's a problem. Um, when I look at Kaggle, I see a world where we're able to uh, promote much of this kind of missing work. When uh, Kagglers approach a problem, there are often you know thousands of teams competing um, to solve a given problem. This means that the the level of empirical rigor is, you know, to my mind, simply unmatched by any other process. Um, uh, and they're, you know, compared, you know, side by side. But uh, so we get this nice leaderboard effect and things like this. But the the community is also like, folks are committed to doing their best, but they're also committed to sharing and to communicating their ideas. And so, you know, through uh, the notebooks uh, platforms and other things like this that we have in the discussion forums. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of knowledge um, being shared, captured, disseminated that is it's just this incredible resource for the field. And it's the kind of knowledge that isn't about novelty. It's about effectiveness and it's about rigorous understanding. And so to me, that's that's deeply compelling and something that I'm really excited to be a part of. Now, uh, I believe that we can do more to to help distill and share the knowledge that the uh, the community is, is generating um, but it's it's there in you know implicitly in all of the discussion posts and all of the notebooks and all of the competition results and things like this um, so I, I find that really exciting and really compelling and then I asked about ml ops and things like this you know I, obviously that's that is part of my background um, and you know for me to go and say look we've read we need really rigorous, in-depth analyses of all our models, and then for me to, you know, then notice that on Kaggle, you know, almost all of our competitions have like a single number summary metric as the as the output. Like, yeah, I notice a tension there. Um, I I think that over time we'll be pushing to um, help create more uh, competition environments and, and other environments that allow people to uh, uh, experience more of a production environment to be evaluated more on their ability to to do things that are you know make sense in a production environment. Uh, but we just had a competition close that uh, um, measured efficiency as as one of the evaluation metrics. I think things like that are really important. Uh, we can do a lot more in that area. So yeah, we're we're gonna you know push to make sure that the community is continuing to go in the most interesting and most important directions. I think that's good for everybody. Uh, but overall, I I view you know. Kaggle as one of the great uh, uh, resources in the ML world right now. Uh, I think it's uh, been significantly underappreciated um, uh, relative to the contributions it's already made as a as a community. Um, but I think that with uh, the little bit of help and guidance, we can do even more. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Kaggle also does kind of an amazing thing of giving lots of people access to machine learning. Like, you know, it's a a super friendly community and there's a lot of learning resources. Um, and I do know a lot of people that kind of got their start in machine learning in Kaggle. And if they'd had to go, you know, back to school to get a PhD to engage in machine learning, they, they, they wouldn't have done it for sure. So I, I think that's an amazing, um, thing. I, I wonder though, it's funny, you know, it's funny cause it, you know, you just said, you just talked about, you know, kind of papers where they're trying to, you know, eke out the last like, you know, 0.1% of performance. And, and that does seem like something that Kaggle, um, you know, really celebrates. And, and there's, there's part of me that like loves that. Like, I, I think getting, you know, the last bit of performance out of a model is actually a pretty fun um, experience. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not going to argue against really accurate models. Right. You know, um, I, I think that the thing that's most interesting, though, is you know, a finding out what the header is, is is really important for any given problem. And you know, from a machine learning perspective, you know, we're often saying things like, "Well, the model is the most important thing." But 
all of these competitions are in application areas where there are people who really care about the you know solving their problem you know whether that's you know helping to save the great barrier reef or um, identifying uh, whales or uh, helping to detect credit card fraud or anything in between yep those folks really care about solving important problems for the problem's sake not necessarily from the machine learning standpoint so making contributions on that side is also really important but but what I find when when folks are motivated to squeeze every last you know percent out of a uh, uh, machine learning problem as a challenge, it leads to an incredible diversity of approaches, and that's the thing that I think is most interesting. It is not you know necessarily that there was one winning solution at the end, and we all you know celebrate that winner as as an awesome person. Although they are awesome people, and we should celebrate them. Um, it's that we also get a huge amount of information about other things that were tried and seemed like good ideas, but didn't work as well for whatever reason. Um, you know, we, you can think of this as like ablation studies at scale. Um, uh, so it's, it's not just the position of the top of the leaderboard that's interesting information. Uh, the, the fact that we do have, you know, thousands of teams participating and, and we need the sort of competition structure to make sure that folks are, are you know, uh, properly aligned. Uh, but the the results that come out of this, I think, are, are interesting. You know, to to um, distill up and down uh, leaderboard. Although it's funny, I mean, even without the competition structure, there's a lot more on a Kaggle these days than than competitions, which is useful Absolutely. and fun, right? I mean, I I think when Anthony was was talking to me on this this podcast a while back, he was saying that the data sets was maybe even more popular in the competitions, which I, I was surprised to yeah, learn. Yeah, so. So we do have, uh, you know, I mean, Kaggle has has become, a, you know, a really interesting set of resources for the world. And competitions is definitely one of them. But you're absolutely right. We have more usage of Kaggle um, for people looking to access data sets for their own uh, machine learning needs than come to us for competitions. And that was something I, I didn't know um, uh, before I joined Kaggle, but it's, it's something that I've, I've come to appreciate very deeply. We have, you know, I think 160,000 publicly shared data sets on Kaggle. Uh, it's an enormous trove of information. Um, and what's great about data sets on Kaggle is that they're not sort of static things. There's opportunities for the community to uh, post little discussions and notes and things like this, uh, to post example notebooks, um, so that it's not just about you know getting a CSV file with a lot of numbers in it. It's about understanding what's in the data set, where the uh, lacks might be, um, uh, where the strengths might be, and uh, you know, just having a really rich uh, amount of annotation that's sort of evolves from the community's uh, involvement in these data sets. Uh, I think there's even more that we can do, and I'm excited to do that. But um, uh, you know, the data sets are a fantastic resource. The notebooks are an incredible resource. Um, you know, th there are an enormous amount of publicly shared notebooks, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of shared notebooks that have example code, uh, that have really carefully written explanatory text. Uh, so, you know, if you're looking to to really learn how to do something, and you want some some great examples coming to Kaggle and and uh, surfing through example notebooks that have been publicly shared is a fantastically valuable place to start. Um, we also have a, a wide variety of of learning courses uh, for folks who are uh, just ramping up and, and getting their feet wet. Um, I think it's important that we provide those on ramps so that we can really be sharing, uh, you know, machine learning knowledge as widely as we possibly can. So, I mean, how do you think about the success of of Kaggle? Do you do you look at it like a like a consumer website? Like, are you trying to increase the weekly active users or something like that, or are you trying to make money with it, or or something else? How do how do you think about that? Yeah. So. Um, I think that Kaggle is basically, you know, the rainforest of machine learning. It's this incredibly rich, incredibly valuable ecosystem um, that the world absolutely needs and that we probably can't get by without. Um, there's not like a direct revenue model, and I'm not super worried about that in the same way that I'm not, um, you know, super worried uh, when, you know, uh, companies have a very large research wing or things like that uh, that might not be you know directly revenue generating. I think that the knowledge that Kaggle is generating for the world, the value that Kaggle um, uh, creates for the world is so valuable um, 
uh, that we we can make a very strong case that that this just needs to exist. And um, you know, as a team, we're pretty scrappy. Um, you know, uh, it's amazing that we have a you know we've crossed the 10 million user um, uh, uh, threshold uh, with a a team of 50. Right, like it's it's not a huge operation, um, and the the work that folks do, you know, from the you know notebooks teams to the uh, uh, data sets teams to the the folks creating learning content to our competition uh, teams, yep, these folks all work really hard. They're amazing people, um, but they have an incredibly large influence um, across the world for what they're doing. Um, so, in terms of you know, how do I think about Kaggle? I think about Kaggle as an ecosystem. Um, this ecosystem has a bunch of different parts that that interact with each other. Uh, you know, we have folks who are coming to us as novice learners. We have folks who are coming to us as practitioners, and you know, maybe they're you know already doing machine learning on a daily basis as part of their job. Maybe they're you know quite advanced in their studies and hoping to be to be doing machine learning on uh, on a daily basis very soon. Uh, we have cutting edge researchers. Uh, you know, Jeff Hinton was a, a famous early winner of one of our competitions. Um, uh, we have a you know a, um, a large engagement from cutting edge researchers, and they bring different things to our community, and they enrich the community for each other. You know, without the the novice learners, I think that we would lose a ton of uh, sort of enthusiastic energy, and uh, uh, you know, sort of keeping us honest stress testing. Uh, without the practitioners, I think that we'd be losing a lot of you know real practical know how and and knowledge for the community that that gets shared really really wonderfully. Uh, without the cutting edge researchers, we probably aren't able to have anywhere near as interesting a, a variety of competitions that are being hosted, um, or you know the the real uh, next generation uh, solutions coming down the pike. Um, and of course, you know our you know as you say, you know competitions isn't all what we're about. You know, if we don't have the notebooks, then I think that we lose a lot. If we don't have the data sets, uh, I think that we lose a lot. So these things play together, you know, in a sort of interconnected web of machine learning in a, in a really interesting way. And I, I think that thinking about Kaggle as a valuable ecosystem and, and celebrating, you know, sort of the ecosystem viewpoint of evaluating whether we're doing a good job is the right thing. But so then how do you measure the, the ecosystem? Is it is it by usage? Is that the... Yeah. So, you know, what is our one magic metric? Um, or, we don't have like one magic metric. Yeah. Um, like how do you... Yeah. How do you measure an ecosystem's health, I guess. Yep, absolutely. So um, uh, that was something I typed into Google on week two of the job. <laughs> uh, how do you measure me? Yeah. How do people who study ecosystems measure health? And and it, it is um, absolutely a, a thing that requires variegated analysis. Um, and so, you know, when you talk to uh, uh, an ecologist uh, about how they measure ecosystems health, they'll, they'll tell you, look, you know, we can't just measure whether the butterflies are happy, right? We can't just measure whether the birds are happy. We actually have to have useful metrics on each of the different segments. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we've got sort of a, a usefully defined grid of metrics. I'm not going to go into them all here um, uh, that help us look at each of the, the different segments that we, we care a lot about and think need to be healthy. Um, but really what we're looking for in the end is not being great in one area and then terrible in a bunch of other areas, um, but to, to have you know, what we call sort of a green flush of being, you know, very good across all the different uh, important areas for our ecosystem. So these are like kind of watching people doing behaviors that makes you think that they're happy and successful in what they're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, watching people's behavior sounds creepy and we, we, we don't do oh. that. Um, but, uh, you know, things like, uh, you know, uh, everything from looking at how many uh, notebooks are being created on a daily basis to our competition, uh, uh, participation to uh, uh, you know survey responses and things like this to make sure that our, our folks are happy to looking at you know the bug reports that are coming in uh, to looking at long term metrics like you know number of papers that uh, are you know uh, citing Kaggle in one form or, or another. Um, cool. Last I checked, there were almost fifty thousand of them. Wow. Um, uh, I mean, you know, so there are a wide range of ways that we can assess whether we're doing a good job. Do you have? new things that you want to try to do or things that you want to change? Like, are there new people that you'd like to introduce Kaggle to or, or new ways that you'd like Kaggle to support um, existing people? Yeah, so, um, you know, you asked about this a, uh, a little bit tangentially earlier. You know, given my background, I think it would be pretty surprising 
if we didn't push towards some, you know, more sort of production grade MLOpsy style uh, uh, pieces in Kaggle over time. And the, some of those will certainly be competitions, uh, you know, judging a model only on the basis of its uh, a accuracy by itself is probably not sufficient for everybody's needs uh, in 2022. And so we, we need to be able to provide ways to uh, to help uh, folks evaluate their models uh, on other dimensions, including efficiency, um, and then to also create you know useful and compelling and interesting challenges. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot that we can do in the world of benchmarking. Um, and uh, you know, right now, our our main benchmarks are really sort of competitions. Um, but you know, given that we have data sets and we have notebooks, um, uh, you know, I think that we can move into um, uh, becoming you know much more long running benchmarks and, and be a, um, a repository and service to the community in that way. Um, so, um, in terms of our you know our sort of user groups and populations, um, uh, we have a really strong. Uh, uh, emphasis right now on uh, uh, outreach for underrepresented populations in, in machine learning, um, and that's going to continue for sure. Uh, and when I look at um, sort of levels of expertise in our in our community, I think that we're doing a pretty good job right now of serving novice learners. You know, as you say, you know, almost everybody who learns machine learning comes to Kaggle at some point in their journey. Uh, so we want to make sure that we're continuing to serve those folks really well and providing as many on ramps. Uh, as we can and making making that experience be a really good and really beneficial one. Um, but I think that uh, you know we're doing well there and we can really improve on how we're serving the practitioners and engaging the the more sort of cutting edge research parts of the world as well. Do you think that um, there's any downside to the the framing, the competition framing of of Kaggle for someone? you know, getting started, like it, it's, it's funny how friendly the community is for the idea that, you know, what, what people are supposedly doing is, is competing with each other. Like, do you ever think about that, that, you know, for some people they might, you know, not want to kind of compete with other people for the, the most accurate model or something? Yeah, like that? I, absolutely. So I've got two responses to that. One is that, um, you know, we've got our featured competitions where people, you know, might be winning, you know, aiming to win some, you know, prize of, uh, you know, a lot of money or something like that. And, and there, you know, people, you know, many of the competitors are trying to win, right? Uh, whether it's winning the prize or winning, you know, a gold medal in our progression system or, you know, become a Kaggle master or grandmaster. And th those are really great and important things to be pushing forward. Um, we have other competitions um, that are uh, called playground competitions that are designed much more to be an on-ramp and less about, you know, winning a prize and more about testing your skills. Uh, but even for the featured competitions, um, uh, one of my hobbies is, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur marathoner and I, I like to run marathons. Um, it's a wonderful, fun thing to do. Um, uh, and you, you get out there, you know, like all the people are cheering and clapping, things like that. And and that's true kind of no matter where you are in the race. And, you know, spoiler alert, I'm not at the front, right? <laughs> um, so um, I think that there is something about having a, an environment that is framed around a competition that can still be about participation and self-growth that is really important, I think really inspiring to a lot of people and that we can, uh, you know, make sure to be emphasizing and and have be part of the Kaggle experience. Um, that's really important. And, I, and, we, and we hear our, our users telling us this, that, you know, uh, lots of people are coming to not necessarily see if they're going to be first or second, but, but to improve their skills, to share knowledge, share ideas, and to learn. You were most recently a Google brand, and, and you know it's it sort of, you know, I think about the work that's like coming out of, um, you know, OpenAI famously, and and um, and other places where, you know, you get these huge models that in certain axes seem to really outperform um, other models' work, and I wonder, like. Does do you think like you know you, if you roll that trend forward ten years, does Kaggle stay relevant? Like, there is there still a role to play for someone, you know, who doesn't have access to like a massive amount of compute resources to to solve a problem in in a useful way? Yeah. So this is a great question, um, and obviously, you know, the uh, what's gone on in the last couple of years in terms of you know. Um, true leaf large scale uh, language models or other multi multimodal models 
is, uh, yeah, it's definitely changed the world in a couple of ways. One of which is it's changed the world of how um, some research is being um, conducted. And I think that the the world of high energy physics is a useful parallel. Now, there's there are some kinds of uh, um, I so I'm not a physicist. I'm just going to say some kinds of physics uh, that can only be done with something that looks like a linear accelerator, uh, where you need to get uh, a couple billion dollars from a local government and build a you know several kilometer mile long concrete tunnel under some hopefully stable part of the world. Uh, so that you can run these these you know incredibly expensive experiments um, to gain certain kinds of knowledge, um, and this has definitely changed the way that some parts of the field of physics works. Uh, there's no question about it. And uh, among other things, the world of physics had to get good at doing this kind of research and to have you know in some places a little bit more of a hierarchy on you know how experiments get proposed, how they get evaluated. Um, not on their results, but whether they should be run at all. You know what what gets into the pipeline, uh, who makes those calls, and things like that. And I think that we're seeing very similar developments for some kinds of machine learning research. Um, but there's plenty of physics that you can do in the world, as far as I understand it, that doesn't involve um, you know having access to a, uh, a super collider or, or things like that. Um, and similarly, I believe that there are and will continue to be a lot of machine learning that doesn't rely on having access to sort of, you know, um, uh, collider scale uh, resources for machine learning. Um, and that can look everything, you know, it can look things like, uh, you know, what do we do for resource constrained environments? Uh, so models that need to run, you know, in the browser, need to run on web devices, need to run um, on uh, distributed you know, edge-based uh, things, you know. My guess is that we probably don't need collider scale resources to train tiny, tiny models. Um, what do we do for um, models that need to be fine-tuned in one form or another? Or even um, you know, things like prompt tuning, uh, you know, where we might have a, uh, uh, a very large scale model at our disposal, but then uh, we need to figure out how to use that model as effectively as possible for a given use case. Uh, something that I think uh, will be yeah, reasonable to attempt for lots of people in specialized domains for a very long period of time, uh, you know, at least as far as I can see forward. Um, the last thing that I'll say here is that it's also useful to think about standards of evidence and verification for these very large scale models. And that if, you know, I'm trying to think of uh, how we would go about verifying that a given model, um, you know, we, we talked earlier about uh, the kinds of verification and you know moral equivalent of unit tests and things like this that might might need to be put into place. Um, I can't think of too many better resources than a community like Kaggle's to um, attack the problem of how do we verify a model that is very very large scale that might have many millions of behaviors or more than millions of behaviors that need to be exhibited in different uh, uh, kinds of circumstances to to stress test to validate. Um, uh, models and, and you know can those be framed in terms of competitions and resources uh, other things like that absolutely right so I think that the Kaggle community will be uh, increasingly relevant over time for these reasons now that doesn't mean that every Kaggler is going to you know train a model you know with um, you know x million compute hours or things like that that that's probably not realistic and probably wouldn't be good for the world if it was uh, but uh, I think there's a lot lot that we can do that will still add value. I guess along those lines, do you feel like AutoML techniques, um, you know, could displace the value of um, actual competitions? Like, I, I feel like in in the past, the winning Kaggle strategy was typically to do the best feature engineering. But I wonder, um, it, actually, I wonder if that's still the case. And then, you know, in, in these worlds where, you know, you have these gigantic models that are sort of doing their own feature engineering is one way to look at it. And then AutoML on top of that, what's, what is, what is a Kaggler to do <laughs> 10 years yeah, from now no, to I mean, beat that strategy? Have... Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. So, um, look, AutoML is a really important tool in the same way that uh, hyperparameter sweeps, you know, just to take an example at random, is a really important tool, right? Um I believe that AutoML and you know uh, useful hyperparameter tuning engines and things like this 
um, do a great job of automating the kinds of work that isn't particularly interesting in machine learning. Um, you know, in the early days, uh, I spent a lot of time being a manual hyperparameter tuner, and it wasn't that rewarding. Um, but the more fundamental questions of what data should be going into a model to, to train it for a given task? Um, how should we be thinking about data distributions and structures? Um, what are the right um, structures for a model to capture um, you know, useful, uh, you know, causal concepts in addition to just learning from that many correlations as possible. Um, even, you know, deeper questions of like, what is, if we're doing, say, you know, fine tuning of a large pre-trained model, like what is the right way to, to set that up? How do we um, create the right sets of targets? Um, how do we choose the right pre-training base to begin with? All of those are interesting questions that I don't think that an AutoML pipeline is likely to solve, um, you know, exhaustively uh, in the place of human judgment um, in the foreseeable future. So uh, I'm very happy for humans to focus on human problems uh, and you know places where human judgment and insight is going to be most valuable and where there's drudgery, let's automate it. I have no problem with that. Well, thank you so much. We always end with two questions and I want to make sure that I, I get them in. Um, and the, the second to last question is pretty open-ended. Um, but I'm curious if you think, or I'm curious what you think is an underrated aspect of machine learning or, or something that if you had more time, you'd like to spend some time looking into? Yeah, so um, I think the thing that is most interesting in machine learning right now is making machine learning be robust to shifting to data distributions. Uh, and so this is where a lot of my work was you know, in my last couple of years in Google Brain. Yeah, as, as we you know, talked about at the beginning, now, when you break that IID assumption between test and train data, you know, many of the theoretical guarantees that underpin supervised machine learning go away. Um, but we still need things to work. And so, you know, I, I think that this is, you know, absolutely the most interesting area right now for um, current work is, is figuring out ways to be robust to shifting data distributions. And this isn't some sort of weird abstract problem, right? It's something that happens for every deployed system I've ever seen. It also happens for things like machine learning for scientific discovery. So if you're going to do machine learning to guide, say, protein uh, design or drug discovery or, or any other sort of uh, generative process, you know, by definition, you're going to be moving out from your world of known things because that's the point. And so how do we make sure that our models are going to be holding up well to those um, you know, unknown areas that are super important for, for advancing you know, key problem areas like like uh, drug discovery. I, I think that's that's really, you know, one of the most important areas as far as I can tell. Mm. Do you have like a favorite paper on the topic that we could point folks to or, or resources to learn more about that? Um, yeah, so we just uh, uh, put a paper out. Um, it's the last paper I was involved in in brain um, uh, uh, called Plex um, that's looking at sort of a, uh, a unified view of, of robustness um, to a data set shift, um, you know, starting with pre-training and then augmenting with a bunch of other Bayesian methods uh, with many, many excellent co-authors, including uh, 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 Jasper Snoke and uh, Justin Tran and Balaji Lakshman. Awesome. Um, and I guess final question is when you think about um, actually making you know machine learning models really work in the real world, you know today in 2022, where do you see the the biggest gap or the hardest the hardest part of that from from going to like you know kind of Kaggle winning model to deploy it and useful for someone um, in the world. Yeah, so I think what's interesting is that, you know, uh, people like you have, have put a lot of infrastructure in place that make things that used to be quite difficult, you know, uh, pretty straightforward now. And so, you know, the challenges of like, how do I get a model into production? Um, yeah, there, there are plenty of packages, systems, platforms, cloud-based solutions, you know, you name it, that can help people do that. Um, I think that the pieces that are more difficult to solve are really about how do you make sure that that model is going to be a model that you're proud of over a period of time. Um, and, you know, where that's most obviously, you know, uh, comes to head in, in terms of robustness, uh, which, you know, might be in terms of data set shifts, might be in terms of fairness. Uh, might be in terms of inclusivity or, or um, things of these forms, but making sure that our models um, are acting the way that we want them to 
in a wide variety of deployment situations uh, is currently, I think, much more difficult than just sort of the, the mechanics of how do you get a model into production because of the work that's been done on, on infrastructure and uh, yeah. um, in, in so many different areas. Well, cool. Well said. Thank you so much. This is a really fun interview. Awesome. I really Great. I really it. enjoyed it. Thanks so much. If you're enjoying these interviews and you want to learn more, please click on the link to the show notes in the description where you can find links to all the papers that are mentioned, supplemental material, and a transcription that we work really hard to produce. So check it out.